Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, my name is David Obelt, and thank you for joining me once again for the Russia-Ukraine War Report podcast. Today is April 1st, 2023. I am joined today by Taryn Fisher. He's a fellow pundit observer of German politics. Taryn, how are you today? Good morning from Berlin. Yes, and good evening from soggy Seattle. Really appreciate you coming on. To give you some background, a few months ago, I was on a podcast that Tiran is on very frequently. He asked me to come on as a guest, uh, and we are returning the favor because we provided some analysis on some German politics, which is Tiran's expertise. And we were told you're wrong. And we love nothing more than providing the correct information because, as we like to say, the truth matters. And, Tiran, with that introduction, how has Germany's position evolved on providing military aid to Ukraine over the last almost 14 months now? I'm going to take you back a little bit further, much further than that. The, the German policy towards Russia evolved, of course, after World War II. To begin with, it was very close to the U.S. position. And in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a chancellor named Willy Brandt uh, from the SPD. And he was the first chancellor uh, from the SPD after the war. And he had been mayor of Berlin prior and seems to have had some connections with the Russians while he was mayor. Uh, if, if you look at the pictures of uh, Kennedy's speech, uh, you know, the Ich bin ein Berliner uh, speech, uh, he's uh, Brandt, Brandt is standing next to him. He started uh, what they called Ostpolitik, uh, this Eastern policy towards the East, essentially traded security and an ability for East and West Germany to mostly, uh, you know, have the people go back and forth. That was the main the main idea. But in the background was the West West Germany was uh, helping Russia to build pipelines and was also going to get gas. That started that early. Uh, it brought a, a certain amount of a relaxation of the tensions uh, between East Germany and West Germany. And that, of course, was a big plus for the SPD, the Social Democratic Party. And that and, of course, the anti-war pacifism after World War II that was growing is in the background of the German psyche. And it's it's especially in the background of the Social Democratic Party. You've got that going on in the West German psyche. And this idea of trade equal integration. In German, it's Wandel durch Handel. There will be change in the policy of a country like Russia through trade. But it's not just a German idea. This is this is sure. in all of this is in all of the West. The, the more integrated uh, our economies are, the more peace there's going to be. What happened was uh, when 2014, when uh, the, the first uh, invasion of, of Donbass or uh, destabilization of the area and support for the uh, separatist movement. Germany saw it as a wake-up call. 
uh, I, I can tell you the military started to reorient that the policy of uh, stabilization operations, peacekeeping operations, they realized they had to change this uh, combat situation was on the horizon. Some structural changes, maybe psychological changes, but truly changing the military around that had not taken foot. I, I think that's the background. Looking at that, you've got in February 2022, with the full-scale invasion, Scholz, the, the Chancellor of Germany, uh, giving a speech in the Bundestag, the German parliament, that was quite amazing. I was very surprised by that speech. Uh, he used the word Seitenwende, which uh, we would say is like a historical change or a sea change. And he announced the, the 100 billion uh, euro package for the armed forces, the Bundeswehr. Since then, there was, I want to say, it didn't really feel like it was understood by everybody. In in the philosophy and the thinking, the idea that pacifism could be appeasement, I think that reached a lot of people, but not all people. The SPD, the, the Social Democratic Party, had internal conflicts. In the governing coalition, you have the, the Liberal Democrats or the Free Democrats, the FDP, which is a, a business-friendly liberal party, sort of close to, from a German perspective, libertarian, but far less uh, radical. And then the Greens. And interestingly enough, the Green Party, the pacifist party uh, through the 80s and 90s, of course, of course, they were in power when, when Kosovo happened and they backed Kosovo. They also have sort of a, a pragmatic wing and a more ideological wing, but the pragmatic wing uh, is fully uh, in charge right now in terms of Ukraine. They were uh, 80% of the party or something like that is behind supporting Ukraine, showing we're giving Russia a clear signal. The FDP has always been fairly pro, I don't want to say pro-military, but they want to support the military. The real conflict has been in the SPD, which also gets a lot of support from the East, former Eastern Germany. This is an interesting thing that's been going on here. Uh, Germany has about 82, 83 million inhabitants. At the time of the uh, fall of the wall, reunification, Eastern Germany was about 15 million. It's a minority, but it's a significant minority. And in Germany, you have a, a federalistic system. So you've got federal states, the Eastern or the new states play a significant political role. And you've got a, a very large dichotomy uh, between the Eastern mentality and the Western mentality. And I think it's important to understand that. Eastern Germany grew up as with Russia as the big brother. And I've heard people who grew up in, in Eastern Germany say they were our brother, but you know, you can choose your friends, you can't choose your family. Uh, <laughs> very true. So, <laughs> you know, there was a bit of cynicism, but you've got a lot more people in Eastern Germany who had some connection with Russia. Most, almost all people learned to speak Russian, whereas in the West, they did not. Very few people learned to, to speak Russian. They, they learned to speak English. And, and you had all sorts of exchanges at the academic level, at, you know, the factories had, had exchanges and partnerships. You've got a, a lot larger percentage of the population that has some sort of emotional or familiar contact with we're about 30 years past reintegration, give or 
take in East Germany, is there still some degree of, I don't know how to phrase this. So I know this isn't the right word, but I'm going to say balkanization is the people that think as East Germans would have thought, are they still in that area or more blending of the population over the last few decades? That is a good question. I would have liked to have said this at the very beginning, actually. You, you can't make generalization. Everybody is different. There are lots of individuals. And in this fact, uh, there are even more. You've got people who right after reunification went to the West. Yeah, they, they, They've been living in the West since then. They still say that they're from the East, but I, I had a friend in Munich. Uh, she that, that was her story. And she was born uh, at the very end of uh, the German Democratic Republic. But you know, she always goes back to the to visit her mother. Then you've got people who've been unemployed since reunification, and they're they're sort of the hardcore Eastern mentality that were never uh, economically or socially uh, integrated into a prosperous uh, democracy. It's, it's a big spectrum in between that. Most people who grew up in the East identify as that. People see themselves, yeah, we're all Germans, but you'll be in a situation where people will say, oh, we're all from the East. You, you feel it. One person from the West comes in the room, you feel it. Certain subtle changes in how people are communicating will take place. It's definitely still there. And even with people who were, were born the end or afterwards, uh, you know, d- depending on various factors, but yeah. It's there. What is different about the former East Germany and its population's view about Russia versus other Eastern European nations that were part of the Warsaw Pact or became puppet states during the Stalin era due to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact? If you look at Poland, if you look at Lithuania, the Baltic countries, even Hungary and the Czech Republic, these countries were all invaded either from the West or from the East for centuries. They see Russia very skeptically. They always have, to say the least but the Germans were never invaded by the Russians, except when they were the bad guys. If you go around here in Berlin, there are quite a few monuments saying, you know, the Red Army saved you from the terrible Nazis and made you into good communists. Uh, I've talked to people who said uh, when they were children, once a year, they were taken by their school to those monuments. It was really being, I would say it was propaganda. You know, this this is the, the message that the, the Soviet Union wanted the East Germans to have. Of course, some of the people are going to see that a little bit skeptically or very skeptically, but it's an underlying feeling. The Russians came and saved us. That's a special thing for East Germany. That's not something that Poland feels. That's not something that Hungary feels or or the uh, the Czech Republic or Slovakia. All of these countries became politically dependent after, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart. Germany didn't. East Germany was taken over by West Germany. How were the 90s viewed? For a lot of East Germans or people who grew up in the, the German Democratic Republic, there's a feeling that the 90s were a very uncertain time period, at least, if not a bad time period. Things did not get better right away. Things got worse. You know, if you've been raised in an environment where capitalism is bad and then you would get capitalism and then it doesn't work out very well, you're not going to feel too great about it. There are a fair number of people in East Germany who identify with the same feelings that the Russians have about the 90s. For the Russians, the 90s were a terrible period of time, a time of chaos, a time of Absolutely. corruption. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And for, I think for East Germans, it wasn't as bad. You know, there was the rule of law, there wasn't terrible corruption, but it was a time of internal confusion, at least. You know, they, they had jobs, they were suddenly unemployed. They had a future, suddenly they didn't know what was happening. The, the birth rate, for example, went way down. In East Germany, after because people just didn't know what's 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 going to be tomorrow. Uh, even today, uh, the economy still is not as certain as it is in the West. Yeah, it's not as safe politically speaking. In in Western Germany, you have a similar situation like you have in the U.S. There there are certain groups of people that vote for certain parties. You know, if you're if you're a farmer, you tend to vote for the the Christian Democratic Union. A ma- in a management position in a big company, you tend to vote for the Christian Democratic Party. If you're a, a factory worker, you tend to vote for the uh, Social uh, Democratic Party. In the East, that wasn't the case, of course. You don't have this history, this tradition of voting for a party. You <laughs> vote for the one party. Yeah. <laughs> there, w- there was only one party, right? So right. after after reunification, uh, okay, the CDU uh, Chancellor Cole uh, was our uh, savior, you know, initially. So we're going to vote for him. That you know, in the first election, a lot of uh, people in the East voted for for him, or even for the FDP, who was uh, you know in the coalition after uh, the reunification. Genscher, the foreign minister uh, from the FDP, got a direct mandate, and that's the only direct mandate they've ever gotten. So you, you kind of get the sense that they're. Just just voting for the people they they know they see and after it, when it got bad it, it didn't work out or they they voted for the other guy and then they just go down the line okay they didn't do a good job we'll try the next one it's a much more fluid political situation i would say than than you have in the west where you've got these long traditions of voting for for the one party uh, since the war the full scale war began uh, the german position has been slow to change but the the, the basic underlying philosophical change that pacifism uh, can be uh, also uh, appeasement i think a majority of the population understands that but still uh, especially in the east a lot of people are scared Philosophically speaking, it's easy to say uh, peace is always the right option. That's I think that's the the easy fallacy that is made here. It, it's difficult to say when is it right to fight. I want to go back to Aaron to something that you said at the start of our conversation. Germany's completing its reconstruction phase from World War II. They've done just this miraculous job. And you were talking about how trade was going on between the Eastern Bloc and Russia, aka the Soviet Union and West Germany. Part of that trade was natural gas and oil and refined oil products. There are people who say that part of the rebirth of Germany's economy and its export economy was due to cheap Russian natural gas and oil products. Yeah, I've heard this argument uh, made quite a few times by economists and also uh, here in Germany in the media. You, you hear that coming more from the, the companies themselves, especially at the time when the gas prices and energy prices were skyrocketing, you know, nine months ago. I, I think there's an argument to be made that uh, German economic advantage worldwide is based on cheap energy. However, my personal feeling is that the reason for, for the German economic miracle post-war is not because their products are cheap. You buy a, a German car not because it's cheap. You buy it because it's well-made, because it's well-engineered. And I think that's what Germans do well. Capital is education and training, job training and organization. 
I think with marginally higher energy prices, as long as it's marginally higher, if it's not dramatically higher, I, I think the German economy should be able to do okay uh, in general. Uh, there are some areas, for example, uh, BASF, the uh, the chemical and pharmaceutical uh, uh, giant, has said they need to go to China to produce. And there's a lot of you know well, why why China exactly? Of obviously the 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 labor costs in China are lower, and that's an a- industry that doesn't just use gas for energy; they use it as a raw material to make products. Right in in those in those areas, it's a bigger factor than than just as energy. And I have to say, for a lot of people in Germany, when Trump and even before Trump, people were saying you need to get off of Russian gas. Germans were were saying, wait a second, uh, so we can buy American fracking gas? Is that what you want us to do? So you know, there there was a lot of uh, cynicism about that. It's easy for Americans to say get off of Russian gas, but it doesn't sound completely authentic. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. And that position is very understandable if you don't look at it through a U.S.-centric lens. Exactly. Back to the original question, Germany's evolving position, how this has evolved, at least from an external observer, from February of 2022, where there appeared to be a lot of hesitation to provide support for Ukraine and frustration from NATO partners and European partners and Western allies. Germany is either now number two or a close number three at this point in providing heavy weapons to Ukraine, which is quite a difference from where we were six months ago. When you wrote that position a couple uh, months ago, and, and I responded to it, one of the arguments I made is the, the military argument. Uh, on the military side, you know, there's a political argument, there's a military argument. The military argument, I think, is 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 a couple things. One aspect is, and, and this is true uh, for the United States as well as for any country, if you put a technology on the battlefield, the enemy gets it, could get it at some point. That is a, a problem then because they, they can develop countermeasures for that. Germany was hesitant for that reason. The US is saying, here, give Ukraine your leopards, uh, but we don't want to give our uh, M1A2s. Well, why is that? You know? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know, so your M1A2s aren't going to be you know taken apart and uh, uh, if the enemy gets them in their hands, but the, the leopards, so you're going to have to make a new generation of main battle tanks or or the other things. So the willingness to give the old technologies was there, but the newer technologies were not. We've seen this concern with the United States. Uh, Back over the summer, they were going to provide MQ-9 Reapers to Ukraine. And then someone in the Pentagon said, not so fast. We don't want that technology falling into the hands of the Russians. In the case of the MQ-9 Reaper, Russia already shot one down in Syria and they already got their hands on one. It's an interesting POV point of view, not just from Mm -hmm. Germany, but we're seeing this from other countries that are allied with Ukraine. And the the other issue uh, for Germany is, uh, we haven't talked about this that much, because Germany was has been very pacifistic. And we thought that, you know, the reunification was going to be the end of history. They took advantage of the uh, the peace dividend, as we call it, right? The German military has been underfunded for 30 years, massively underfunded. In the case of a full-scale Article 5 NATO involvement, Germany would have trouble providing its the, the commitments that it's made 
uh, to NATO. And even in, in, in peacetime commitments, they, they have trouble getting uh, enough hardware on the battlefield. And this is something that we see not just with Germany. We saw this with other countries. Uh, you have Spain as a great example. It's like, hey, we got over 300 Leopard tanks. We got over 100 in storage. We could just hand them over. They go to How many of them, them are working? Yeah, they go to look at them and they're no better shape than if they had been stored in Eastern Russia outside for the last 30 years. Germany is certainly not the only NATO alliance country, European country, that with the fall of the Soviet Union and the dissolving of the Warsaw Pact nations and Glasnost to go, well, I guess we do not have to worry about large-scale war on the European continent ever again. And there's another issue uh, that we're all pretty aware of, the the, the Gepard, the, the, which is cheetah in German, the, uh, the anti, anti-aircraft self-propelled artillery tank or vehicle. It shoots, uh, you know, a, a thousand rounds a minute. And I think they had 60,000 rounds of ammunition. What does that last? A minute? Yeah. <laughs> there's just not the industry there to pr- produce the amount of, of ammunition that that needs to be produced and and that's uh that's a big problem i think that's the biggest problem that ukraine's having it's it's not just getting the 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 vehicles there you need to you need to have something to fire i don't want to move too far away because the the topic is german politics. One of the things you and I were talking about before we started recording, how NATO has equipped itself not to fight a artillery and tank-oriented war if NATO were to engage in a large-scale war. They rely more on air power, on standoff weapons, on cruise missiles, on precision strike, firing ridiculous amounts of artillery day after day after day in some places where the front has been frozen for almost a year, like we see in some places, uh, Zafrogia area is a great example. The production capacity, not just for Germany and not just for Switzerland's its own special thing, it could get its own Mm -hmm. show, but even here in the United States, the manufacturing capacity is not set up to match the way that Russia has invested in fighting large-scale war. My understanding of this is that uh, even in the Cold War, the planners knew uh, since Stalin's time, you know, I think I believe Stalin or Zhukov said quantity is its own quality. Uh, they just had masses more and and the NATO planners uh, were hoping at least that the more precise weapons uh, would, would be the advantage in the end. Uh, hopefully what we're seeing in Ukraine uh, as well, that the, the more precise weapons do a lot better job than uh, masses of weapons. But still, you need a quite a lot more capacity to produce the stuff than, than uh, is currently there. If we go back to a little bit more than a year ago, you have Christine Lambrecht, who was the Minister of Defense for Germany. She had just come into that role. Yeah, the, the, the coalition uh, formed itself in November. Uh, she is one of the least ideal ministers in the cabinet. Most government ministers come from a legal background. So they're, they're lawyers. They've studied the law. And she studied law. She uh, came from the interior ministry in justice. She was uh, in the justice ministry uh, in the Grand Coalition, the CDU, Merkel, CDU, and uh, and SPD. She's an SPD uh, uh, party. And she wanted to be the minister of the interior, which is uh, the bigger ministry. And she didn't get that. It it was kind of like, you're not that great um, here. 
here's defense. And at that point, the war hadn't started. For the last 20, 30 years, the defense ministry was where you sent somebody who you wanted to get out of politics, because there were always some sort of scandals in, in spending or or something happens with the right-wing movements in, in, in the military or something like that. Most defense ministers, uh, that was their last political position. The, the one exception is Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, she was defense minister before she went to the EU and became the president of the commission. And Lamprecht was in a scandal almost as soon as she got the role. Basically, it looked like she went on a holiday to the German version of uh, Martha's Vineyard uh, with her son in a in a in a German uh, military helicopter. Pretty much the whole time, she was uh, this scandal or that scandal, and she was definitely dragging her feet. At the time, it seemed like she was really just uh, in terms of Ukraine. She was just implementing uh, the policies of Scholz. In hindsight, it looks more like she was really just not the right person in the right place. Prior to Ukraine, no gigantic problem for German politics. In that situation, it was a disaster to have a person who did not want that ministry doing that job and really not capable of of doing that job. Actually, the the scandal that that made her actually leave was on New Year's Eve, she made a a TikTok or it was either TikTok or, or, or an Instagram uh, video. There, in the background, there were there were all these fireworks going off because that's what you do with on New Year's Eve here in, in Berlin. She made this video saying, you know, the war is a terrible thing, but look on the bright side. I've met so many new people. Uh, a, you know, a, a PR disaster, and everybody just went and shook their heads. And when is is this person going to be gone finally? And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, uh, announced her resignation. Boris Pistorius comes in on the seventeenth. January of 2023. Lambrecht is under all sorts of fire at this point. Uh, Germany is still resisting on freeing the leopard. And you have France that comes out and says, we're going to do the AMX-10. These light tanks or some people are probably writing angry emails right now going, it's a tank destroyer or a scout vehicle. Take your pick. It's any (laughs) of the three. Um, And then you also have the UK come out and say, we're going to give a token. 14 Challenger 2 tanks is token. Boris Pistorius shows up and all of a sudden Ukraine's getting all the armor that they want metaphorically speaking to an outside observer it looks like well there's a new sheriff in town and look what happened the wheels were probably turning on this before that. So yeah. what's the story behind the story? All the arguments I've made up to now, I think uh, stand. We don't want our top of the line equipment on the battlefield and we don't have enough of it for ourselves. Right. Uh, yeah. I think that was uh, also a big part of it. So I think there were a lot of inhibitions to sending them, but uh, the big difference between Pistorius and, and Lambrecht is that uh, he wanted to get stuff done. He came into the job knowing what his job was. He was a federal state interior minister which means essentially the chief of police for for a state. And so that's a big ministry. And so he had a lot of experience as a minister running a big ministry. He did do his, uh, cons- he was a conscript in 1980 or something like that. At least he he has that little bit of military experience. He seems to be a good operator. He seems to 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 be able to get people in positions that do a good job. The, the equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was replaced. And that was an interesting choice. Uh, they took... Uh, a person 
who was a liaison uh, during the COVID. The German Bundeswehr, the German armed forces, uh, had a, a fairly large role to play in the anti-COVID measures, you know, getting people vaccinated. And so he was on the uh, task force that was in the chancellery for that purpose. So he was known to the chancellor as well. And so that seems to have been probably uh, supported by by Schultz, not just Pistorius. The other major issue in, in Germany is the office for uh, armaments. There's a, a federal office that takes procurement of, of weapon systems and development of weapon systems. And that's sort of a typical thing. Germany is in times of peace, the enemy becomes the administration. And- <laughs> <laughs> And uh, that was definitely the case at, at that agency, that just the, the amount of bureaucracy made it very difficult for, for weapon systems to be developed uh, in a timely manner and in a manner that was uh, uh, actually good for the battlefield. You know, the, the typical example is the uh, the, uh, the Eurofighter. In Germany, it's called the Eurofighter. and In the UK, it's called the, the Tornado. Uh, wait, no, no, not the... Is, typhoon. Am I right? The Typhoon. Typhoon, Typhoon, yeah, yep. right, right. The, the Tornado is the old plane. The Typhoon was, it was started in 1990. They wanted to make a, a, a dogfighter. As the 90s and the 2000s were developing, it, it still hadn't been finished and, and actually flying. People rotated into these positions and come up with new ideas. Actually, we need this. We need this. And this is typical that these projects just went for too long, too many cooks uh, destroying the stew. We'll see if he's able to get that agency under control and able to produce weapon systems at a, at a better rate. Something that Russian President Vladimir Putin has written and talked about about and stated going back more than a decade is his desire to restore the boundaries of the Soviet Union. And uh, when people think of, say, the boundaries of Soviet Union, East Germany becomes a part of that. His vision goes further. He wants to go to the czarist era, chunks of Finland and Sweden and a little slice of Norway up on the top. Has the concern elevated in Germany from the Merkel era on the validity of of his spoken and written goals and the legacy that he wants to leave behind in his mind, viewing himself almost as a modern interpretation of a czar. My question is, has there been an evolving thought among the German people? All right, let's say Ukraine loses. Putin has made it very, very clear he's not stopping at the border of Ukraine. You've talked a lot about this pacifism movement and the dichotomy of pacifism equals peace, but pacifism can also be tantamount to complicity. Chamberlain. Yeah. Chamberlain. Uh, peace and art. Yeah, just yeah. take Czechoslovakia. He says he just wants Czechoslovakia. It's all good. Um, yeah. yeah. So I guess well, it really comes down to it. Has there been this a wake-up call? My perspective on this is Merkel is a special candidate. I think she was following the policies uh, that had worked for decades. And to now, she personally hasn't really said she made a big mistake. Generally speaking, in Germany, the, the federal president who was her foreign minister. The German system has a chancellor who's like the prime minister, and it has the uh, the federal president who's the you know the head of state, sort of like the king, but he's elected, of course. But he's he plays a purely ceremonial role. He, but he was prior the, the foreign minister under Merkel and was really the architect of the uh, Wandel durch Handel of the you know 2010s, let's say. Trade with uh, hoping that, that Russia will someday come to its 
consensus and and be a, a, a peaceful partner. He said uh, this was a mistake. I think in general, you know, not everybody's like you and me following the news daily and trying to figure out exactly what's going on and how much battle damage has been done and and where is the line of of, of combat. A lot of people are sticking their heads in the sand and hoping that it's going to go away. You know, I think the majority of the population does not like seeing the news and seeing war in the news uh, every day. I think for a lot of these people, there is sort of just a, a general fear and hope that uh, he's not as crazy as he seems to be. And they're just going to leave it at that. I think for the political class, for the people who who are involved in politics, I think when you see these, you know, this this television show with Slovovyev, 60 Minutes, yeah, the, the pundit. Well, well, for, for our American audience, what we're talking about is on Russia One. It's not like the United States news program of 60 Minutes. I'm not picking on Fox News, <laughs> uh, but it's the closest corollary that I think a lot of our audience have in their head because of I say Newsmax or OAN, significant chunk of our audience, who are you talking about? But everybody knows Tucker yeah. Carlson did Fox News. So yeah, um, yeah. it's like Fox News, but worse. Yeah. Somewhere between propaganda and uh, I think it's propaganda. But they yeah. do they do sometimes have open discussions on the stage there uh, where people say uh, things that aren't completely in line with the, with the Kremlin line. On that show, they make relatively frequent threats to Germany directly. We, we're going to take Berlin back again. I think in the political class in Germany, I don't think they believe those threats, but uh, the idea that Russia is going to keep going is, uh, if they're successful, I think has been uh, ac accepted and understood. Uh, Taryn, I want to thank you for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. It certainly helps me and I hope for our audience understand how modern German politics got to where it is, why we've seen from an external standpoint changes in point of view, this evolution of policies towards Ukraine and the type and the level of support that they want to provide. It's also fascinating you've provided the insight, the neglect that the German military has been under for decades and that debt come to raise its ugly head. Yeah. Uh, and David, I'd like to thank you for giving me an opportunity to uh, share my perspectives and uh, thank I'd also like to thank you for your situation reports and all the work you're doing. <laughs> it's not just me. There's, there's a lot of people behind it. We've been talking with Taryn Fisher. He's a fellow pundit like myself. He is a observer of German politics, lives in Germany, has for years. He is also an American citizen. So this gives him a unique perspective. Linnea will be back tomorrow, so she will be doing a situation report for April 2nd. My name is David Obelts, and as I always like to say, when we come to the end of the show, there's a lot of awful in the world. Just be good to each other. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.